Good afternoon or good morning, depending on when you, where you're tuning into our webinar from. Uh, my name is Nora Vani. I'm from FISDAP, and uh, we're going to get going here in just a few minutes, uh, probably around 12.05 Central. Let a few more people trickle in, so stay tuned, and we'll get going shortly.
All right, it's 12.05, so I think we've given folks uh, enough time to slowly arrive here. Uh, welcome, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is the PCRF Journal Club, a monthly pre-hospital care research podcast uh, webinar that we do in partnership with the PCRF. Uh, my name's Nora, again, I'm from FISDAP. I'm joined today by Megan Corey, a PCRF fellow, who is going to be our host in lieu of our, our normal host, Dave Page, who is um, in meetings all day today. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, it's great to be here again. Absolutely. So we'll just dive right into it. Megan, take it away. Okay. Um, today's uh, article is entitled Race and Sex Disparities in Pre-Hospital Recognition of Acute Stroke, and this was published in Academic Emergency Medicine this past March 2015. And uh, we are really fortunate again today to have uh, the primary author with us. Um, it is uh, Dr. Prasha Govindarajan. And I've got to, in the interest of disclosure, let you know that I've actually worked um, and I had the um, a fortunate circumstance to work with Prasha uh, on some stroke research. So if you um, hear us talking back and forth uh, about uh, some of the studies that are, are in the pipeline that are related to this, um, that's the reasoning for this. So let's dive into this. Um, uh, first of all, welcome to Dr. Govindadajan. Are you um, able to hear us okay? Yes. Thank you for okay. the introduction, Megan. Yeah, it's great. We have um, a slide up. Yes, yeah, great. I, I, we have a slide up here, so um, I don't know if everyone can see this, but um, Dr. Govindarajan is an emergency medicine physician at Stanford and formerly at UCSF and specializes in uh, neurologic emergencies and pre-hospital care and has done uh, quite a bit of pre-hospital research and working on um, a few of the stroke-related pre-hospital research studies. So this one, Race and Sex Disparities in Pre-Hospital Recognition of Acute Stroke, I'm going to um, summarize and then I'll, I'll ask uh, Dr. Govindadajan some questions um, as we go along. And then if you have questions out there, you can type into the field uh, at the bottom of the GoToWebinar control panel, I think, uh, is where you can type in. And uh, both Nora and I will keep an eye on those. And uh, please send in your questions as we go. So um, this study, let's start with, I always like to start with the problem, uh, the background, what leads a person to study uh, something like this. And the problem, as we know, stroke treatment, um, particularly TPA and endovascular uh, techniques are time sensitive. In particular, TPA, we know that we need it. We have a three hour window and uh, there's some benefit in some studies that show that uh, three to four and a half hours um, Patients can, some patients can still receive TPA and, and actually benefit from treatment. Uh, endovascular techniques, um, I know there's been some studies that show up to eight hours uh, with specialty transport to certain centers that are capable of doing so for certain patients um, uh, may provide benefit to stroke patients. So we all, uh, I think, as EMS providers have heard uh, these things through our Heart Association ACLS updates. Um, so we know the importance in time, in, of time um, and of our own assessment and recognition of stroke patients in the field. But um, we're still seeing that so few patients are still getting TPA. There are uh, other studies that have shown that recognition of stroke is an issue in the pre-hospital setting. Um, we know that early, we need to recognize stroke, we need to notify early, uh, we need to make a critical transport decision then deciding between a specialty center or another center. Um, and uh, so the patient can actually get their treatment. 
and other studies have shown that there are basically two uh, general areas of um, difficulty in this whole idea of pre-hospital stroke recognition. One is system-related factors, so those are things like training of EMS providers, um, and a few studies, uh, some of our own years ago in San Francisco showed improved sensitivity of EMS recognition of stroke using specific training programs. And then I think, Prasha, you mentioned in, in your article also a North Carolina program or a few other programs that have shown, and Cincinnati, North Carolina, a few others that have shown that um, targeted training has improved um, sensitivity of EMS recognition of stroke. Um, so that was a system-related factor. What this study actually addresses are patient-related factors. So what are the patient-related factors that um, may affect our ability to identify or recognize acute stroke in the field? So uh, we know that stroke and neurologic presentations are complex, um, and we know that there are um, many factors that may uh, affect our ability to recognize stroke. But what about, and this is what this objective of this study was, was what about demographics? What, um, what are the contributing factors in terms of patient factors related to gender and race to our ability to notify or recognize stroke in the pre-hospital setting? So, now we go to what we already know. We already know um, here that in other studies, particularly in acute settings, that there are disparities um, in treatment and prevention strategies, uh, particularly for African-American and Hispanic patients, um, for women and STEMI patients, um, and that there's unequal implementation of evidence-based care in stroke patients. Uh, there were also a few studies that you showed uh, or, or that showed delays and higher mortality among uh, minorities in strokes. So this is we know that the background of this then, that this is uh, a potential problem. So what this study wants to look at is what, um, looking at the sensitivity of pre-hospital stroke recognition in the field, actually sensitivity, specificity, uh, positive predictive value of stroke recognition in the field, by looking at the pre-hospital electronic uh, database when we identify acute neurologic deficits and stroke in the field and compare that to the hospital database, discharge database, and also ED discharge database of acute stroke um, and diagnosis of acute stroke as the gold standard. So uh, that was, and then compare and look at are there disparities uh, regarding race and sex uh, between the two population, or between the, uh, in the recognition of stroke. So this was done in two, it's called a cross-sectional observational study, by the way. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And it was approved by the IRB. Um, two counties in Northern California, and it's over a three-year period. These two counties had uh, about 14 hospitals. Um, interestingly, several of them obtained stroke center status during this uh, study period. And the subjects were over 18 years old and had discharge diagnoses of stroke, uh, which is an ICD-9, at that time ICD-9, I guess now there'll be ICD-10s of uh, stroke, which is 430 to 438. And then other indicators of stroke, um, like uh, sudden um, loss of vision or hemiplegia or um, uh, dysphagias or aphasia. And then, um, and this is OSHPED data. So the, the data source for the hospital data was the OSHPED data, the um, Office of Statewide Health Planning and Development. For the pre-hospital data, it was electronic um, PCRs or uh, pre-hospital records obtained from a, an electronic um, data 
registry. And actually, I have a question about that, Prasha. Was, there's a mention in here that the, these data were derived from a larger pre-hospital stroke database, one that was particularly built to understand the effects of stroke recognition or, or stroke treatment. Um, is this a registry? Is there a stroke registry in these counties? So there are stroke registries for the state of California. One, which is a get with a guideline, has a stroke registry. American Heart Association has a registry. And California Department of Public Health is also building a stroke registry, although that's not the one we used, Megan. The one we okay. used is for the counties of Santa Clara and San Mateo. And uh, the, the question that we were trying to ask is, was regionalization of stroke, which was implemented in these counties between 05 and 010, associated with improved treatment rates for stroke? And so to answer that question, we were funded by the American, by the Agency of Healthcare Research Quality, it was a five-year funded study, and we put together a database using Office of Statewide Health Planning discharge files and the pre-hospital electronic records. So the big registry that I was talking about in the study is the five-year database that we built exclusively to answer the question on regionalization. And the study on disparities came from a chunk of that big data set. So the first three years, you know, we were kind of building it over time. So we had three years worth of data when we decided to ask this question on disparities. So we used 05 to 07. Uh, from the bigger data set that we were building. Oh, that's helpful. Um, so were the pre-hospital providers aware then of the building of this database uh, at the time that they were collecting their data for their electronic records? Not at all. So uh, this was not prospective. Uh, as you know, I mentioned in the study design, it's a cross-sectional. So, yeah. We were handed over the data, so off, the way this works in terms of, you know, for people interested in kind of doing similar studies using large databases, uh, you know, what we did was we went to Office of Statewide Health Planning, uh, who maintains the database for the state of California. So all hospitals in the state of California have to send in patient-related visit, every single patient-related visit to any hospital in the state of California is recorded and sent to the Office of Statewide Health Planning Development. VAs are excluded from that database. And so that stays with them. So they have patient information, uh, their diagnosis, treatment, their demographic information, you know, where they live, their zip codes, and um, what hospital they went to, you know, all of this is um, identified and kept in a non-public, uh, secure internet database. And then they also de-identify and maintain a completely de-identified public database. So you can use either of those depending on the questions you have. Um, and, uh, and so we got the non-public uh, database because we wanted to link it to the pre-hospital. So this was kind of done not prospectively, but retrospectively, so the pre-hospital providers were not uh, aware of the study. Uh, and, and so the, the other piece that, you know, we, we will probably come to it when we talk about uh, reasons for disparities is 
we could not really capture language from the pre-hospital database, yeah. uh, but Office of Statewide Health Planning Development now has a data variable called primary language, which would have been useful when we did the study to kind of see if there was a difference by language, but that was you know, not available at that time to do this. So I'm sorry that this was kind of a long-winded answer to your question. Uh, no, that's... I hope it yeah, that's, answered some of it. Very helpful, actually, especially, you know, targeting those who are interested in doing this kind of research to know that this is out there. And actually, it's good to know that um, there's a new data field for primary language. Um, the pre-hospital records, um, can you describe a little bit about how those were obtained? So we worked with a primary transporting agency for the two counties, and fortunately it was, you know, one uh, agency was doing most of the transports, 90% of the transports, and they have an electronic database where every transport uh, or a run sheet is electronic and is uh, kept in their secure database server. So they, we were able to uh, sign a data use agreement with the agency and get the electronic PCRs for the transports that happened between 05 and 07. And we did linkage between those records and the hospital records that we obtained from the Office of Statewide Health Planning Development. And the methodology that we used, and you would find the details of that in the paper, I'm also happy to answer any questions you may have about the linkage. It's called the probabilistic linkage methodology, and we used a software called LinkSolve to do that. And that's how we created a single record, start, you know, starting from the time a patient called 911 to the time they were discharged from the hospital. Yeah, I noticed there's two pieces in here. Uh, there's a description of how the two databases were linked, um, and uh, using probabilistic linking methodology. And for those um, people listening, there's it, it's exactly like it sounds, right? So we we want to compare data fields in two in two different files to try to attach, um, make sure that we're linking the the patient from the pre-hospital file to the same patient in the hospital um, files or in the hospital records, uh, making sure they're one-to-one -one linkages. Um, so it, it's, it's exactly like it sounds, um, but it's done through uh, linking specific fields, and it sounds like you can select those fields. Um, I mean, it makes sense to select fields like birth date um, and gender and maybe a, a, a unique number, maybe a pre-hospital uh, run number or something like that. Um, I know it's described in here, there's a, it starts with, and this is where I get a little bit lost, where it starts with the signing log likelihood ratios and then translating that into a probability. Um, so somehow there's, there's a, a way to create a one-to-one -one linkage um, with an individual pre-hospital record to their one hospital record, either from the ED discharge or from the patient discharge database, is that correct? That's absolutely right, Megan. I, you know, I do, yeah, the language that gets a little bit um, uh, difficult to, you know, understand for non-biostatisticians non-biostatistic, and, you know, full disclosure, I did not do this myself. Uh, you know, I uh, had a biostatistician who does probabilistic linkages of large databases to help me with it. And so he used a software called LinkSolve and the software does everything that's described in the methodology. It assigns a log likelihood ratio and then comes up with the list of matched records 
And so he goes back and forth trying to put in variables, take them out to see which gives us the best bang for the buck. You know, what gives us the max number of matches uh, with yeah. a high probability. So that's what yeah. the statistician does, but the rest of it is done by the software itself. And it looks like the variables that were used um, to link were like, the, and it makes sense, the date of the incident and admission. Um, the hospital code, the EMS incident, the billing zip code, uh, patient gender and race and ethnicity and age. Um, so those all, and, and then it seems like it was very rigorous. You assigned a, a match probability of at least uh, 0.8, and but it, it, later on I know it says in the paper that um, most of these matches were well over the 90% range um, so that they were highly likely to have been the same patient. So in terms of the linkage, it looks like that was pretty well done. Absolutely. I think that's because we have a lot of specific variables in our databases. You know, as most of you know, EMS run sheets, you know, people often don't have the time to do all of the documentation that would be helpful for research, which is why we always say it's good to do research prospectively because you can name the data variables and make sure we collect those variables um, as appropriately as we can. Uh, because this was a retrospective database, we had to go back and do some cleaning of the EMS database before we could do the match. And one of that variable specifically was the race and ethnicity, because a lot of those were handwritten. People would just, you know, uh, say what language they spoke. They may not necessarily. So we had to kind of do some, you know, two uh, investigators, me and one of my co-authors, kind of looked at all of those, cleaned it up, created all of the ethnic and race variables that we used in our model before we even did the linkage. Um, yeah, you just answered one of my questions. That was actually one of my questions, if you could describe how, because it mentions that two of the investigators reviewed and assigned race and ethnicity. Um, so was there existing documentation, just written, handwritten pre-field? That's right. So OSHPIT has, you know, in the Office of Statewide Health Planning Development Database, race and ethnicity are coded a little differently than what was, uh, how it was coded in the pre-hospital records. Uh, so it was really easy for us to just use the uh, OSHPIT data, but if we did that, we would have lost many of those who did not have a final outcome of stroke. So we would have not have been able to calculate the specificity by race and ethnicity. So, which is why we went back and looked at all of the pre-hospital records, which did not have a clear documentation of race and ethnicity that did not fit into the groups coded by, you know, the OSHPED database. And so, if we both agreed on a certain ethnicity, uh, then, you know, we, we assigned, uh, we would code, we coded it as such. Uh, you know, and, and then if we disagreed, then we excluded that from the analysis. Okay. And then um, I also noticed, so when we're thinking about um, the research question, we're thinking about the other variables that might, you know, interfere with, with an outcome. If we were to find disparities, um, mm -hmm. what other things might be explainable? And, and, and the two, one you already mentioned, which is language, um, may play a factor or play a role in this. And also socioeconomic status. And that's mentioned that that was also a difficult thing to capture from the pre-hospital data. So as a proxy, not uncommonly used, you use, uh, you use zip code, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. Was that obtained from pre-hospital records as, as well? 
or, or was that the that was a pre-hospital variable? That was also a pre-hospital variable. Office uh, Auschwitz data also has uh, zip codes, but you know, as uh, the their data set does not have zip codes for all of the 300 transports that happened. So we did go back to the pre-hospital records, and many times we would have incomplete zip codes. So we would kind of try to go back and look and see what zones they were typically trying to, you know, talk about based on where they got transported, and we would try to fill those in. And if we could not, uh, you know, then we, we just excluded those. We had the option of doing something called imputation, which is, you know, you just, based on your data set that you have, statisticians can impute and tell you what those missing numbers are and what those missing zip codes are. Um, we we uh, talked about this with the statistician, and uh, doing that would not have changed the conclusion of the study. So we decided to yeah. kind of keep it simple. But that's an option if you have large data sets with a large number of missing numbers. So on an average, if you have about 30% or a third of the database has missing numbers, you could go for the, the multiple imputation methodology. But ours was you know, about 5% or so, so we really didn't think there was a need to do it. So we just more of data cleaning than you know, following any fancy techniques. Okay, great. Um, so then let's move to uh, the analysis of the data. So uh, we're, from this point, we want to look at, you have your two data sets, you've done your linkage, and now we want to look at sensitivity and specificity. And um, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening to this who already know sensitivity and specificity, but if you don't, um, these are ways to determine if a diagnostic test uh, does what it's supposed to do. So it, essentially you can create a, a kind of four panel table and, and one of your supplements actually has these tables and I sent that actually to Nora. She's got the results on, on one of the slides so when she puts it up, um, essentially on one part of it there, thank you, on, on the left side you see this is the pre-hospital provider's uh, recognition of or impression of acute neurologic deficit or stroke and then you have the hospital-based discharge diagnosis of stroke and you always think of, you know, on the left you have the, the diagnostic test that you're interested in and in the upper panel you have um, the kind of quote gold standard. So is this, you know, and then you have the yes or no in each and you create this table and essentially what you have is if a pre-hospital provider impression of acute neurologic deficit um, is yes and the hospital-based discharge diagnosis is yes, that's a true positive. So uh, that area is true positive, whereas if the pre-hospital provider says yes and the diagnosis is no, uh, that's a false positive. Um, and the same goes for uh, your false negative and your true negative in your other panels. And then the sensitivity is the ability of the test to correctly identify those that actually have the disease. So you're looking at, the, and you can see the calculations down below, the sensitivity um, is the true positives um, over the true positives plus the false negatives, essentially. What you're looking at is the ability of the test to correctly identify those that actually have the disease. So that's an important, um, you know, an important variable or an important outcome to look for in our diagnostic tests. And then specificity would be the ability of the test to identify those that don't have the disease. So can we identify the non-strokes? Um, and you can see the calculation below. Also positive predictive value uh, and negative predictive 
value. Those depend a little bit more on the population. They're influenced a little bit more by the prevalence of the disease. But those are, positive predictive value would be how likely is it that this patient has the disease given that the test is positive. So that's an, another uh, important factor. So um, what was looked at in this study was sensitivity and specificity overall, and that's what you're seeing right here. And then um, subsequent uh, tables, and we, I didn't ask Nora to put them all up from the supplement, but the, uh, the, the subsequent tables were by uh, race and then by uh, um, uh, gender. So we had, the, we had a, a table for um, non-Hispanic white, for Hispanics, for Asians, for African-American, and then for men overall and women overall, and looked at sensitivity and specificity um, for each of those uh, categories. Can you describe, though, Prasha, that there's something about in here about using a um, controlling for covariates in, in the model that you created, um, controlling for age, sex, payment category, source of admission, and time and day of presentation. How do you incorporate that once you create these tables? So the tables, those are kind of two different uh, steps, Megan, and that's a great question. Because the sensitivity and specificity really look at performance characteristics. So just like you said, you know, we have the true positive, the false positive, the true negative, the false negative, and then you come up with your sensitivity and specificity. But the question that we want to really answer is, you know, is this independently associated with, or does the performance change by race and sex. So when we just look at numbers and say, you know, the sensitivity was 32% and, and I'm just kind of, you know, not quoting the exact numbers because I don't have the table here. But um, if I said that the Hispanic, the sensitivity for Hispanics was 30% and the sensitivity for Asians was 28%, we know that there is a difference. But by using a regression model uh, and controlling for the other covariates, what we really try to show is that the difference is in fact because of race and not with, with um, and not influenced by any of the other problems that could happen with uh, with these patients. For example, it could be because someone is older and being Hispanic might have caused the difference. So we try to control for age. And then we try to control, you know, if it's a female patient, uh, was that influencing the difference in outcome? So we control for gender. And then if they have a certain, um, uh, if they're from a certain socioeconomic status, or if they, uh, if they have um, another comorbid condition that could influence how they present with stroke, is that influencing the disparity in numbers that we see? So we try to control for that variable. So that's what I mean by saying we control for the covariates using a regression model because we really wanted to study if race and gender was in fact the reason for the difference that we were seeing in the study. Thank you. That, that's a great explanation. So just um, uh, so everyone out there, just to repeat then, we have the sensitivity and specificity with these tables that show you kind of the raw information. And then we see just from comparing the tables that there are, and actually you did hit it um, kind of on the head with the results, that 32% uh, 
for uh, sensitivity overall. And then uh, maybe you have um, in another category, we have 27% for uh, sensitivity for the Asian um, group of patients. Uh, and then taking it to the next step then, you're using logistic regression to uh, throw in those covariates and make sure that what we're, is race independently associated with, these, uh, with this outcome or with this sensitivity um, outcome that we're seeing. So I think that's that's a, a great explanation. I appreciate that. And the, the comorbid factors, I, I'm sure that answers a few questions that, that would be um, out there about, you know, why, why we might see a certain result um, and a certain result like disparities uh, in sensitivity. So let's um, go through the results then. Then, uh, let's see here. We've got 300 and almost 310,000 pre-hospital transports in that three-year study period, and that's overall. And we had about 3,800 with primary impressions of acute neurologic deficits. Um, the total number of um, hospitalized patients uh, with this primary diagnosis or secondary diagnosis of stroke was a little over 10,000, and of those, 9,200 or so come from the patient discharge database and 1,500 from the ER. Um, so what we have here then is we're able to link, and this is where the N comes from, linking 37 or 3,787 records, which is 35% of patients who were transported by EMS with primary impressions of, um, of uh, acute neurologic deficit or stroke in the electronic database. So uh, that's our overall. And then the... Um, Demographic table shows us that we had about, uh, overall, we have 42% non-Hispanic whites, 15% Hispanics, 10% Asian, 5% African American, and 1% Native American, which is uh, similar to the demographics of the region, which is helpful, too, to know that your actual database is, re is uh, uh, reflecting the demographics of the, of the, care of the population. Interesting, uh, I thought, was 40% uh, um, of the study patients were younger than 50. Did that surprise you? It surprised me. It, it really did. I, I think we have a, you know, uh, unfortunately because I think of the demographics of the community, we have a lot of young people with stroke and uh, there is quite a bit of data out there, Megan, that Hispanic strokes, you know, often happen in younger folks because of, you know, many, many reasons. It could be lack of primary care, lack of recognition of hypertension, diabetes, and other risk factors, uh, but um, you know it is unfortunate but true. Yeah, and I didn't know. That. Point out. It, it, it's. I was surprised. I put a couple of exclamation points next to that. Forty percent of the study patients younger than fifty, um, and also that Hispanic and African American patients with discharge diagnosis of stroke were significantly younger. Um, mm -hmm. So that yeah, that was actually surprising. I didn't realize that. Um, and, and is that something that you've seen in other, uh, you know, other databases, or is that something that? Well, you know, I have to say the the papers from Texas uh, specifically look at you know Hispanic population because there's been a lot of epidemiological studies uh, by Dr. Lewis Morgenstern from University of Michigan who's uh, studied stroke in Hispanics uh, specifically, and uh, most of his papers talk about. Uh, the, demo, the uh, early presentation uh, or incidence of stroke in the Hispanic population compared to the rest of the population. So there's definitely data out there that supports mm -hmm. it. 
I don't know if it's 40%. It could be more because he was really looking at you know that specific population. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a really high number. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a, an interesting point as you point out. Okay, and then um, looking at the results, or continuing through the results overall, we have a sensitivity of 32%, um, which means uh, the ability of the of our recognition or ability to recognize correctly recognize the disease is 32%. I found that extremely low, but um, it seems like they're all over the you know looking at at the um, summary of. Uh, data from other studies are all over the place. I know that early on when we studied stroke uh, a while back, of course, paramedics knew we were studying it and we were also targeting education and this was many years ago when TPA, right after TPA was first approved, um, we were able to demonstrate improved sensitivity from I think it was 60% to, to something higher than that, 70-something percent, but 32% seems so low. Absolutely, Megan. And so just a couple of points on that. There have been a couple of systematic reviews on this topic since you pointed out that there are, you know, they're all over the place. Uh, and that's because, you know, the, the question the systematic review study looked at was, you know, what's the pre-hospital diagnostic accuracy for stroke? And they came up with the answer of you can't really compare all of these studies and say uh, what, what the, what number you know, is kind of the common number or average or median because every study that was done used a different methodology mm -hmm. depending on, you know, how they define their outcomes. Some of them used stroke registry outcomes, some of them used hospital-based outcome, uh, and some of them compared dispatchers with medics and used medics as a gold standard compared to dispatchers. So the numbers that we have are highly variable. And also it depends on the training I find that um, LA County, because of the extensive work that they've done with the FASTMAC study, and even before initiation of a FASTMAC study, they've received a lot of stroke-related training, and their performance seems to always be on the higher side compared to the rest of the country and rest of California. Um, but I have to say the numbers that I had from San Diego uh, in 05, uh, that was a study on pre-hospital diagnostic accuracy for stroke and the numbers we had was 40%. So we looked at the city of San Diego medics and compared that with stroke registry and hospital-based outcomes and you know a few years later I find that you know Santa Clara and San Mateo are not very different. Um, so we, we definitely are looking at um, the trends over time because this is a three-year database and then we are looking at a couple more years now to see if that's changed uh, after the regionalization was implemented. Uh, but it looks like there's definitely a lot of work to be done and I think that kind of, you know, um, blends into some of the work that we, we've been doing and, uh, and uh, future work that we will be doing. Sure. And uh, one of the things that we noticed, I know, uh, many years ago was when insensitivity improved, positive predictive value dropped a little bit. And, and I think that's just a factor of increasing the false positive rate, um, sort of an over-triage effect that, that you see with, that we see in trauma, basically, too. When, if we're using, say, an outcome of transport to a stroke center, making the decision to transport to a stroke center, then we might be catching the, some of the false positives as well. So it's yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, hard to determine what's the 
gold standard outcome um, to, to get at the accuracy of, um, of those data points. That's right. I think the stakeholders have to really decide, you know, what what the numbers need to be. Uh, you know, what percentage of false positive is the hospital willing to take? You know, because That's right. uh, you may not necessarily have coverage to to take all of those stroke mimics that could be potentially strokes if we increase sensitivity to 90%, right? Uh, yeah. But on the other hand, if we can balance it out and I think it's really going to be driven by the resources that the uh, the county has, uh, the training programs that can be done for the medics, and uh, how much the hospital can handle. Because uh, I think it was one study from Canada that showed for every one stroke patient, they had five stroke mimics that got transported um, as a suspected stroke by EMS. And so their neurology team was just absolutely overwhelmed. Uh, by the number of transports that they were getting as suspected strokes. So I think it's a fine balance and, you know, that, that has to be determined by kind of the stakeholders. Sure. Um, so getting to the, I think we mentioned the overall results of uh, the sensitivity being lower in Asians and Hispanics uh, compared to non-Hispanic whites. Um, we have 26.5 and 28.8% compared to 35 0.3% and then correct recognition lower in females compared to males, 30 and 35% respectively. Actually, that one kind of surprised me too. Um, I always uh, had this inherent notion that uh, stroke was more common uh, or in the female population than in male or, or maybe that because this notion that women live longer, you know, maybe the more likely to have stroke um, and maybe the exposure to stroke, you know, that that would not show a difference. But it may be that, you know, the stroke presentations are different just like we see in, in cardiac or something something else. Anything, any thoughts on that? Uh, we, we couldn't really, you know, whatever we say at this point, Megan would be hypothesizing the reason for the difference because we couldn't really answer from the study why these differences exist. This just kind of shows us that difference exists, but we don't really know why they exist. Uh, but I agree with you that um, the American Heart Association has statistics on men and women, and, and they kind of graph it by uh, age. So even within females, they kind of have these different age groups and look at the incidence of stroke. I think that changes with age, uh, and, and I don't remember those numbers, but I agree that they are not identical. There are times when females have a higher incidence than males, and males have a higher incidence depending on the age groups that you look at. Um, mm -hmm. But I, you know, in terms of the difference, I agree with absolutely what you said. Could it be the, the way they present? You know, I, I think that's what most people think based on the cardiovascular uh, papers that have been published on the differences in presentation. They are often not typical. They, you know, females wait to call 911 because they think it's uh, often in a, you know, state of denial about the disease process. Uh, so I think those differences and also um, maybe how it's communicated to the medics. And that's something that wasn't really captured in the study, you know, how it was, how symptoms were communicated to the yes. medic, you know, yeah. makes a huge difference. And often quantitative studies don't capture that kind of information. So we really have to do more qualitative work to understand the patient-provided communication in the pre-hospital setting. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, the next variable I think is is just as important, which is correctly identifying non-strokes. And that was uh, also shown. Um, it, you also see some disparities here. Correct pre-hospital recognition that a patient is not experiencing a stroke is lower in Hispanics, Asians, and African Americans compared to non-Hispanic whites. And and um, so we're seeing disparities on both ends. They, uh, whether or not you're actually correctly identifying a stroke, whether you're correctly identifying a non-stroke. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think that really kind of you know takes us back to the issue of communication in you know language barriers and. Uh, you know, how symptoms are perceived culturally by these different groups and how it's communicated to the pre-hospital providers. You know, I think... Yeah, I thought that... That was really a, a point of the discussion. I thought it was very well written. And for anybody who has the paper, page 270 at the top describes... Uh, and, and I think you, you did a great job of describing all of the... the um, actually, it's in the limitations section, I believe, of the limitations. Um, and you know, a few of these, you hit both of them just in your last comment, um, that you're not able to measure the effects of the patient's primary language, but also something that I, th I think we, we focus too much on language and and just race as an overall, you know, physical appearance, but it's also not only equivalent definitions um, like cultural understandings and implications, uh, you know, interpretations of signs, symptoms, how, how it's communicated, not necessarily the actual primary language, but the cultural interpretation. I think that was a, uh, a really good point. That's right. For people who have heard the term busy all the time, you know, we know how difficult it is to kind of, you know, understand what that means in different languages and different cultures, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, often, a you know, subtle signs of stroke that gets missed is, you know, falls under this big group of, group of I feel dizzy complaint. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just an example, but you know there may be certainly other uh, terms or chief complaints that fall into that, and uh, that really muddies the picture of you know the recognition. So I think um, overall, the in the discussion, the overall results um, underscore the uh, substantial level of disparity in in recognition, but also that in that uh, overall sensitivity um, is in pre-hospital stroke recognition is is low. Um, and so just de deciding on where to go from this, you know, what, what to do next, what, what kinds of studies come off of this study? So what type of research do you think stems from this um, study? Uh, I would say that the big uh, next step is really trying to improve pre-hospital stroke recognition, Megan. And, uh, the, the work that we are going to be doing together kind of, you know, is, is the next big step that we have to take. We want to, so this has been, uh, TPA was first uh, approved in 95, and data since 95 has consistently shown that pre-hospital stroke recognition continues to be low. I mean, stroke is one of, you know, the disease processes that we could do something about in the pre-hospital setting. And as you kind of framed in your intro, you know, with all of the data that's coming in about TPA and also about, uh, you know, interventions, it's really important that we recognize and we also recognize the appropriate type of stroke. We want to know if somebody would be a TPA candidate or if somebody would be a candidate for intervention. So I think there's definitely uh, a lot of work to be done on pre-hospital stroke recognition. 
And how we want to do this, I, I think there is a lack of evidence on what kind of interventions need to happen. You know, people have tried stroke scales, and you know, once again, I think the first couple of stroke scales uh, that was uh, created was in the late 90s, and it's been about 15 years, and we haven't seen any big difference. So I think we have to try to move a little bit away from just relying on stroke scales and maybe just go back to the community and ask, what is it that's making it difficult for you to recognize stroke? And, you know, that's the work that we did together uh, as mm -hmm. the qualitative, the focus groups. And, uh, you know, we know that most people would like some training and education on recognizing stroke just because it's not, you know, it's not an EKG that's going to tell you it's, uh, it's a STEMI or not. You know, stroke has such uh, varied presentations that can make it difficult to recognize. So I, you know, the training is going to be key education on stroke, uh, stroke treatment, um, and the role of providers in stroke, I think is going to be key. And that has to really come through some qualitative work. And then, you know, we really have to talk about uh, standardizing communication uh, with uh, both the provider, the patients and the hospitals and in a way kind of have scripted communication because we just don't have much time when it comes to, you know, uh, time windows for TPA. So we have to streamline the process as much as we can. And uh, I think a lot of this comes from some of the stroke center certification models. I think things changed after they streamlined all of the clinical pathways in the hospital. And I think pre-hospitals kind of need to take that message and change the way we do things in the field uh, to improve uh, the outcomes of stroke patients. Um, yeah, all great. Uh, we have a comment here. Um, is that a comment, Nora, are you seeing that from David Ben? Yeah, we got a comment from David have Ben. Have you seen uh, the Miami Emergency Neurologic, yeah. Have you seen the Miami Emergency Neurologic Deficit MEND scale, yes. Um, I'm familiar with the MEND scale, I can't, uh, not off the top of my head, but I know it's listed in um, the, uh, there's there's a, a program called Emergency Neurologic Life Support that is supported by the um, Neurocritical Care Society, and it's, the MEND is listed as one of the stroke scales. Um, you know, we have the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale, the LA uh, Pre-Hospital Stroke Screen, the NIH Stroke Scale, um, the MEND, there's an Australian Stroke Scale. Um, uh, do you, and Rasha, do you have any, any feedback on the MEND, the Miami Emergency Neurologic Deficit Scale, or any of the stroke scales? Uh, I have to go back and look at the different components. I don't exactly know what the components of the MEND scale are, but uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it adds a little bit more to the uh, Cincinnati Stroke Scale, and mm -hmm. I think they yes. emphasize on the uh, visual fields in particular. So I think they are really trying to use that as a way to triage patients to comprehensive stroke centers too and also try to make this a little bit more specific. That's my understanding of the stroke scale. Yeah. Uh, you just sent know. a link. It has mental status, um, which has level of consciousness, speech, uh, certain questions um, and commands, and then it has cranial nerves, facial droop, visual fields. The visual fields was the one I know that was missing from Cincinnati that, that I thought was um, probably right. an important one. Horizontal gaze yeah. and then limbs. There's been quite a few um, studies that are showing, you know, the 
uh, which which elements of the NIH stroke scale are the most uh, you know indicative of or the most important in terms of highlighting um, stroke. Uh, there have been several. And, and uh, also point out, Megan, I think there's been a lot of validation of the Cincinnati and uh, the labs and also the Melbourne. Uh, but I haven't seen any recent papers, and people can you know uh, chime in about that about. Uh, comparing the different stroke scales, including men. So that certainly could be a question for systems that are using the men's scale and triaging people using men. Yeah, and we have, um, David is saying that in the county works that helped providers assess better, um, uh, fine motor skills I think are included in it, and it's where he got to a, a stroke patient that he would have missed. So um, I know that we had that experience with the um, visual fields, when we added visual fields to our assessment, we missed, we, we caught a few patients who are younger who had stroke that we wouldn't have caught with just the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Scale. But um, yeah, that's, that's a, a good tool. You should give your thoughts on, you know, as every system has a homegrown stroke scale. You know, Cincinnati yep. has theirs, LAPS, you know, LA has theirs, Melbourne has theirs. Uh, I know difference Boston had theirs when, you know, I was in Boston. So, yeah. you know, we all have our homegrown, and then now San Mateo and Santa Clara are moving to what's called a B-FAST, which includes yes. balance and vision. Uh, so I think we all have different stroke scales, and uh, it would be nice to compare those. But I know that you've also trained medics to do the NIH stroke scale. So, mm -hmm. you know, is this time to just go and adopt the NIH stroke scale as opposed to trying all of these different, you know, small, uh, homegrown stroke scales is a question. Exactly. And and one of the, the points that, that comes up, and I know this, this has come up, uh, this came up a long time ago when we were talking about stroke, is you have to suspect it before you can apply your stroke scale to begin with. So is the problem earlier? So um, that's that's one of the, the issues that has come up. In, in just discussing this. And actually that, that uh, program that I was talking about the, that the um, Neurocritical Care Society is, is now hosting um, or sponsoring is trying to get at um, maybe creating an emergency neurologic life support like we have done with trauma and, and cardiac patients so that we don't handle, uh, th that we have a common way of handling acute neurologic emergencies. Uh, in the first hour, understanding that stroke is going to be a separate, you know, each one is going to have their distinctions, but but having some commonalities between acute neurologic emergency management in the first hour of treatment um, may be a good thing. Yeah. So, um, Nora, do we have any other comments or questions from out there? No, nope, Megan, I think we're we're ready to wrap up here. Okay, do you have any other comments, um, Prasha? Do you have any comments for or questions or anything for us? Not really, Megan. I think this was a great discussion. Thank you for leading the discussion. And thanks to David Ben for, you know, uh, mentioning the MEND uh, or the Miami Stroke Scale. I think, uh, you know, it's, it definitely brings up a lot of questions about um, what would be the right stroke scale to adopt and what are the outcomes that we are really looking at and how that could be influenced by the type of stroke scale that we adopt in the pre-hospital system. So I really appreciate the comment and thank you for the opportunity to be part of this. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. Thanks for joining us. It's always great to have the primary author. I think it uh, adds so much. Thank you so much again, everybody.
Thanks. Okay, Nora, are we ready to sign off? Absolutely. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Um, as always, we will be posting a recording on pcrfjournalclub.org. Um, so feel free to pass this along to colleagues, students, whoever you think might be interested. And have a great Monday. Thanks again, everyone.